I said, yeah, you, you're one beautiful woman. And I, I just love watching you. And so she said, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, nobody has ever told me that. And I was like, really? You're kidding. And she said, no, I'm serious. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am feeling like I need to post an op-ed after some discussion this week on the Facebook group. Oh, how so? What What's going on? Okay, so there was a lot of discussion about our discussion about a shot at history from last week. Mm. And there seemed to be some implication that I want everybody to be married. Oh, <laughs> which I am here to say officially, I do not want everybody to be married. I fully support people's choice to remain single. On the other hand, Mr. Bindra needs to get married, which is a completely unique situation because his mother and I now are best friends because I've read this book and I want her to be happy. <laughs> and he would make somebody such a good husband. Right? And his spouse would temper the extreme obsessiveness. So for everybody's happiness, I want him to marry, not everyone. Okay. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) And if you haven't seen what Allison is talking about, because I poked, poked you there in the Facebook group, check it out. But it's not like you did it by yourself. Other people jumped in. Thank you, other listeners. <laughs> that's that's all I have to say. But yes, people need to join the Facebook group and poke me, apparently. Or get on your side. I mean, where were the people who were on your side? I know. Where were those people? I know you're out there. Poor our Allison. <laughs> well, we will take a decidedly different turn into something that's not argumentative this week. We are talking this this actually I was so excited when I saw this in an issue of the Olympian a couple of years ago and the Olympian is a magazine for the US Olympic alumni and I saw an article about Madeline Manning Mims and her work as a chaplain at the games and I said huh didn't know that the Olympics had chaplains but they do And Madeline was kind enough to join us for a lovely long chat. And just a little background on her. Madeline is America's first and currently only female gold medalist in the 800-meter run, which she earned at her first Olympics in 1968 at Mexico City. She then went on to compete at Munich 1972, where she got a silver in the 4x400-meter relay. And then she also competed in Montreal 1976 and was uh, supposed to go to the Games in Moscow 1980, but the U.S. boycotted, so she had to stay home. She was called to become a chaplain and served in an unofficial capacity at L.A. 1984, but was an official chaplain at the Summer Games in Seoul 1988 and has been a chaplain at every summer games since then. 
she sat down with us. We talked to her for over two hours. Uh, this is going to be the first part that we're playing for you today, in which we talk about the role of a chaplain and how they serve Olympians. Take a listen. What does the Olympic chaplain do? What is that job? Well, one, one of the things is uh, that we serve the religious services as part of volunteer chaplains to Team USA and um, are there to console, to encourage, to empower them in preparation for their performance, to help better their performance. And so the one way we do that is in retrospect of addressing the, the total person or the total uh, person concept, part of the area that a lot of times is neglected is the spiritual part of a person, uh, one's faith, one's ability to pull their strength into their performances. And after they've done everything in training, strict training, and to prepare themselves, mentally prepare themselves and their belief system is the one thing that comes into play that is often overlooked. And so as chaplains, we become very sensitized to the opportunity of uplifting the athlete and helping them to understand the purpose for which they were born, uh, their divine call, their gifts, their talents, and how to take that to a higher level so that during the time of performance, when they've given everything they had, they can reach down into the reservoir of their faith and pull it forward to help them do what they do best, what they were born to do. So, and the basic thing is just loving them where they are, re reminding them that it's not what they do, it's who they are that is appreciated and loved. And, you know, most people don't have time to be telling them all of that, but as chaplains, we do. I'm a Christian chaplain, and so I, we host a times of Bible studies. We host times of prayer with the, with the individual and with the collective. Um, we host times of where we have a service, and because usually Christians are very active in their faith. More, more, it's more than just going and saying a prayer and getting up and leaving. They have times of fellowship uh, with each other and communion uh, with God and with those who believe like they do. So that's, uh, I guess that's a good way to share with you in a nutshell uh, what we do. Now you're, you were saying we, so there are multiple chaplains traveling with Team There's USA? Yes. Well, there usually is for Team USA two, two to three chaplains that reach out to the different teams because of course USA is quite large and it has a lot of different sports that are represented so you know there is a need to go and and reach as many people as possible in their sport during during their time of competition but you also are developing relationships so that before and after the games or before their comp competitions, you want to be able to develop your friendship with them and uh, just see how they're doing and how they're functioning outside of competition, this whole thing. So, yes, there are more. And there are what we call international chaplains from around the world that come into 
the Olympic Games to be able to reach out to their different language people, their language groups and uh, people groups. And so, yes, there are. So is this specifically a Christian endeavor or will there be chaplains of other faiths as well? There are chaplains of other faiths as well. Usually the host country is responsible for the religious services of the Olympian, the Olympic experience. And so they bring in different, uh, there are five major religions that are uh, given attested to, and that is uh, the Christian, which is Protestant and Catholic, the Jewish, the Muslim, the Hindu, and the Buddhist. And so those five major religions of the world are given attention to. And so um, they usually, a lot of times they'll use their own people from that specific host country to come in to reach all of the other religions, except for when it comes to Christianity, because it's so large. It's a very large contingency from all areas all, all over the world and that exist. Probably the second largest is the Islam, and um, they have imams come in, and usually they, the imams basically stay in the facility where the chaplains uh, have their chapel services and this type of thing, and they have their prayer calls. So those people, whoever they are, from whatever part of the world, they can come into their chapel and do their prayers. Christians are different in that they're used to not only coming into chapel and have chapel services, but they're used to congregating in small groups and doing like Bible studies and times of fellowship together. And they like to pray for one another. Whereas I don't think a lot of the other uh, religions are that active. Oh, I have so many questions. Sure. What <laughs> what happens, for instance, during Beijing or during Sochi, when there mm-hmm. the the government of the host country actually has laws mm-hmm. against certain religions? Well, because the Olympics are not governed by the governing countries. They're governed by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. And that's what, uh, those are the rules that are implemented in how the Olympic Games are governed. It doesn't have anything to do with your country's government. It's because the world is coming to the Olympics. So it has to accept the statutes of the IOC. So have there been any issues with chaplains of, uh, especially China is the one that comes to mind the most because they have been mm-hmm. so anti, anti-religion as a, as a government with mm-hmm. protecting mm-hmm. the religious chaplains coming in? Because I assume right. we can't use local personnel, for lack of a better word. Right. Well, the thing that has happened, I, I remember in Beijing because I, I was there, they had accepted bringing in veteran chaplains from different parts of the world. And then maybe three weeks out before, you know, we got there and everything, 
had been worked out, they changed their mindsets. Uh, what we are, we're going to do is use our own chaplains. And so for every religion, they were going to use their Chinese chaplains to address the need of that religion. Well, that did not work out really well <laughs> because, first of all, they had no relationship with the athletes from the different countries. They really didn't even have a relationship with their own athletes that they found out that they have athletes of faith. And so it didn't go very smoothly there, except for the fact that I was uh, with a group that came of international chaplains in the Christian arena that were called in as outside. And what we had to do is use our relationships with the athlete to come in on a day pass. And uh, actually, I had been ministering four years earlier to the some of the Caribbean teams. And I was invited in by the Caribbean team to come in on a day pass and given the opportunity to uh, do Bible studies and meet with individuals. And then they would like, hey, you, you know, we know since you're in here, you'll want to go over to the uh, U.S. dormitories and, and meet with them. And you have the right because you're in here for the whole day. And so I, I probably had more freedom than I ever have had, you know, uh, because of getting in on a day pass invited by athletes or teams from the uh, Caribbean countries to uh, serve, serve, you know, English-speaking people. So I did have a chance to work with some of the U.S. people. And actually, some of the U.S. athletes came over to the Bible studies to meet with the Caribbeans. And that was unique in that happening. But, you know, actually, I think as far as I understand, the same scenario was going to be pulled off by the Tokyo for 2020. I was asked to be a part of the international group that would come in and, and work with the Christian athletes, specifically Team USA. Uh, since it's so large and any other, you know, like Canada or any other English speaking countries, I was going a part of that team. It was, I think it was about 25 of us that were internationally brought in. And just, uh, let's see, I think in January or February, they decided they weren't going to do that. They decided that, well, we've decided to use our own chaplains from our own country because uh, they, they will have to be here a month out and be trained and this type of thing. And the argument is that you already have trained chaplains. You have very seasoned veteran chaplains that are willing to, you know, get their own way paid and, and serve as volunteers to do the services that are being asked of you as a part of the IOC's uh, religious services. And um, they had changed personnel and they had done a lot of things that they decided now uh, this is the way we do. So that's one of the reasons why I uh, have been pushing in the development of an academic program for Team USA so that uh, we can actually train our own alumni 
in our different sports to come back and become part of staff and go with the team as part of staff as individual chaplains. Now, that's taken a long time and a very, very hard push, let's put it that way, having served on nine U.S. Olympic teams as a chaplain, not as part of staff, but as invited by the host country. But now I, I, I saw, like, first of all, I can't do this all my life, you know, and I need to pass the baton on to other younger uh, alumni who will be trained. But then I realized, wait a minute, they need a, a program set up for them where they can be trained for this so they'll know what to do. They don't have to go through what I went through in learning on-the-job training learn, <laughs> type of learning. So I set up the United States Council for Sports Chaplaincy, USDSC, uh, which is a 501c3 organization, and uh, am in the process of developing chaplains who are alumni, Olympic alumni and Paralympic alumni, to go in, back into their sports and serve their sport. So what does that training involve? What does, as opposed to being a minister and specifically ministering right. to athletes? Right. The first thing, it's a two-year academic program in theology and also practicum, praxis, what we call it, how to reach the spiritual needs of Olympians. And the best way to understand the culture of the Olympian is to have been one yourself. And so to pull from, instead of pulling from outside of the Olympic culture or Paralympic culture, you pull from the inside for those who have walked where you're, where the Olympians and Paralympians are walking. And you have a deeper understanding of what it's like, what it feels like. In this time. So that takes a, that's a whole different person that it's not just a theologian who's coming from outside or a youth pastor who's coming from outside or an evangelist who's coming from, it's an actual Olympian or Paralympian that's is being trained. Now they've done this most of their life, so they're very comfortable with it. But the opposite side of it is they may have not been in the area of theology. So to bring them up to par professionally as a, a theologian, there needs to be some type of training in theology that deals with sports ministry. It's not just the overall theology. It's the theology in sports. And uh, so we have some top professors uh, from around the country and outside of the country that, that we've pulled to help come in and train. And, I mean, the athletes uh, that we've had for the 2018-2019 training sent, uh, camp were just overwhelmed and learned a lot and saw how to fit it in and, and make it work for uh, their ministry and their outreach to Olympians and Paralympians. But it was, it's just getting started, even though the bringing together of this whole idea was incorporated in 2003. But it took that long to start developing the whole program. It took me going back to school and getting a Master of Divinity degree and then a doctorate of ministry degree to 
help formalize and see how to do this at an academic level, at a graduate academic level, because we didn't want just novices there that didn't have experiences in working spiritually with athletes. We wanted to bring them the best. And so that's what this is all about. It's a two-year program that they'll go through being taught theological things and identity and sports and it's a powerful program. I've even wrote a book from my dissertation on chaplaincy in, in the uh, U.S. So that's basically what that is all about. It's very intense. It's very... <laughs> um, my brain is exploding right now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. So I can imagine. When, you're when you're talking about sports and, and theology and training these chaplains, mm -hmm. We're talking about chaplains who would nece not necessarily agree on theology, even within Christianity. You have many, many different mm -hmm. sects because they mm -hmm. disagree on theology, never mind having mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. different, you know, whole different religious schools. So what's the unifying theology or where are you starting from, from a theological point of view? Uh, well, being in the Christian arena, we start with Jesus and the cross. We start at a very simplistic thing that unites all Christians, and we go from there. How is Christ received and perceived and works through the athlete? How do they allow their lives to, as we say, so let their light shine that others may see the glory of God in them? How do we, we don't go and start uh, dividing ourselves on our uh, denominational traditions and this whole type of thing. We keep it very simple and we keep us united that way. So, you know, that, because you're right, there are a lot of different denominations and there's different way they teach and things like that. And we're not there to argue theological lines as far as, you know, how you do this or what do you do. We keep it centered and on the main thing being the main thing, and that is Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah uh, who has redeemed mankind. So we keep it centered on that. And basically, because we're Christian chaplains in this area, that's how we reach out. Now, the one thing that we are taught as Christians, and this is something that we teach in our classes too, is because we believe the way we believe, does not give us the right to exclude people on the team who believe differently. We are called to walk in love and in respect to all men and women. And so let's say there's somebody on the team who is Muslim. I don't ignore them. I don't act like they don't exist on the team, but I reach out in love and do works of kindness and works of encouragement and, you know, just ways of uh, reaching the athlete that will empower them to do what they were born to do. I'll give you a good example. In one of the World Track and Field Championships, I was chaplain at, uh, I'm trying to think where this was, it was a European game. So I'm trying to think, was Berlin? Well, I had been to Berlin, but this this was one of the European World Track and Field Championships that I was at. And one of our ladies on Team USA, Track and Field, was one of our top runners, and she's Muslim. 
one of the things that I noticed every time I would come into the cafeteria, usually I would sit with a group of uh, athletes and just to fellowship with them, just to be there, not to talk about anything spiritual. You know, we were there to eat. And so that's what we did. And, and we were joking around and everything. And I always noticed that she would come in and sit by herself. And so one day while I was go- getting ready to go out, I saw her sitting eating by herself and I w- walked over to her and I said, I said, do you mind if I join you? And she said, oh, no, sure, you can sit here. I'm getting ready to go in a few minutes. I'm almost finished, but you're welcome to join. And so I started talking to her, and I said, you know, I've seen you on TV. You are one of the most beautiful one runners I have ever seen. I said, and, and that's saying a lot because I've been a member of four Olympic teams myself, and I've seen just artistry in beauty. I said, but you are one of the top runners I've seen as a female that is just glorious to watch. I said, I love watching you. And she's like, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I said, when is when when are you going off? Which means when are you competing? And she told me, and I said, well, you know, usually I have to be back here at the camp to work with different athletes. But if I can at all get off, I want to come and see, watch you run. And she she was like, wow. She said, thanks. I said, yeah, you, you're one beautiful woman. And I, I just love watching you. And so she said, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, nobody has ever told me that. And I was like, really? You're kidding. And she said, no, I'm serious. I said, well, let me be the first to tell you, okay? And we kind of joked and kind of around like that okay so I left there and that afternoon I was on my way to another venue and got on the bus to go there and she was on there with another lady older lady black lady and um, I saw I say hey you know I was like how you doing how things going and she said good good and I said are you ready and she said yeah yeah, I am. And I said, okay. I said, I'll, I'll be out there. And uh, as I was walking back to my seat, I heard her said, Mom, that's the lady I told you about. And that's what it's all about. It's not always preaching your theology. It's walking it out. It's loving people where they are, whoever they are. Because in my heart, I feel that God didn't send his son just for a few people. He sent it for the world. And they're part of the world that God created. And I I just, you know, I was so moved by that. I, I was really touched by the fact that she would go back and tell her mother an experience that she had with me. Simply out of me stopping and saying to her, you're one of the most beautiful athletes I've seen compete in the world. So that's an example of how we walk it out, you know, how we express our loves for someone who who has a different religion than yours. So you're focusing on that sort of unifying element of love throughout world religions as opposed exactly. to a particular theology. But have you gotten pushback because the program is Christian focused? 
No. The thing is, it's for the athletes. And so, I mean, if you're pushing back, what are you pushing back? Are you saying the athletes don't count? They don't, they don't deserve this? Or, you know, because they do this outside of being in competition or being on Team USA. So most people that I have just, and it hasn't been me personally, but it's that, that have said, you know, oh, we don't need that or something like that, were people who were not, first of all, were not athletes, and secondly, were, did not, were not a part of the request that would come from the athletes asking for chaplains. They were outside, and they had authority in a certain area, in, in the area of being part of administrative staff. And it w- wouldn't be everybody. It would be maybe one or two who would say, well, we can use that for something else. I'll give you a good example. One of our sports psychologists had set up, I don't know how many sports psychologists, he had six sports psychologists at the time that were set up to be a part of staff. And he and I talked about it and everything, and he said, we really could use a chaplain. A sports psychologist and a chaplain work very well together. And I said, yeah, I know. It's interesting that even as I came in, as the guest of the host country, a lot of times I ended up meeting the the sports psychologist and we would talk about needs for the team that we can adhere to. So he said, what I'm going to do is something very unpopular. I'm going to pull one of my sports psychologists. Uh, we haven't voted yet, but I'm I, instead of making six available, I'm going to get five available and ask if we can have a chaplain. So he did that. He did that. And the athletes all uh they they all agreed, yeah, that would be good. We would like to have a chaplain. They sent it up to the next level of committee. And there were two people on something like an eleven member committee that sat there and said, No, let's I tell you what we can do. Let's use that position that he has given us and get another trainer in. Well, they already had eight trainers and didn't need another one, but ignored the request of the athletes to get a chaplain. So, you know, it's not the athletes that are is pushing back or anybody because we don't force ourselves on the athletes. You know, we develop relationship with them and we, we, nurture them and see about them and love on them and you know nobody's going to kick and holler about they're trying to throw this down my throat no because that's not the way we're trained so I you know it's been unfortunate that the door many times has been shut by administration one or two people who have authority to make decisions uh, or swing a vote in a different way and but if things had just began to really change, and we have one of our own gold medalists who was ready to go to Tokyo to work and field team, and well, that all fell through because everybody was on board, and a lot more athletes are in positions of administration now. And uh, they said, as long as the athletes want this. You know, we'll give the athletes what they're asking for. Um, She was already, they knew her. The athletes knew her. She was well-known. She was looked up to. 
you know, and she had gone through our two-year training. She was just, it was just ready. And then COVID came, you know, and, and it just shut down everything. So we're trying to look at regrouping for 2021. And uh, as it goes along, you know, we'll continue to look at who, who in the alumni of the different sports are available or desired or feel that they have a calling in their life to reach out and, and serve their peers. So say I'm a, an athlete and I, I just make Team USA getting ready to go to an Olympics. Mm-hmm. Where is my introduction to the idea that there is this service available to me? Usually I come, because I'm the only one who's done this, usually I come to your conference. And we share about what the chaplaincy looks like. And I also share about the fact that I'm looking for people who would like to be trained in chaplaincy to help them, you know, come back into their sport once they've finished their sport, because you have to be an alumni. And that this is, you know, they hear about this during their, their opportunities at the national conference that we have. So, that's that's where it's introduced to you. It's introduced to you, and most of the time, being an Olympian or a Paralympian, the Olympians that are coming up, the Olympic hopefuls, they know who you are, and they already have some inference into relationship building with you, and you just you know really build on that, and um, so the chaplains are are known. Our chaplains, let's put it that way, are known through uh, them attending as an alumni at the, their national conferences. So that's that's where it'll be introduced to you. This chaplain that was ready, she was actually uh, ready to go to different sports competitions and introduce herself to different ones. So as, along the way, she she would get developed relationships with different ones. And uh, that was already, that was really cool. That was different. That's what I meant by expanding myself because I don't have the ability to to be everywhere and everything. I was a WNBA chaplain for six years with the Tulsa Shock here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so a lot of the girls, when they would come to compete against our team, I would get a chance to meet them and we'd have chapel services right before the games anyway. So I'd get a chance to meet some of them. And some, a lot of those girls ended up on the Olympic team. And so when I'd go over there, I'd be, I would connect with people that I knew that that type of thing. You mentioned learning on the job. What were some of the hiccups along the way that you encountered and and had to figure out how to build this program? Yeah. Well, first of all, Let's go back to finding out that I was even called to something like this, <laughs> which is unique in itself. Three of the four teams that I was on, I was captain. I was the women's captain in track and field. Now, as captain, you can either make it honorary or you can activate your post. And in activating your post, you would find opportunities to serve your teammates. And so that's what I was really doing. I, you know, when I would be on the teams, the different teams going 
Pan Am Games, going to World Championships, going to European Games, and this whole like a lot of times my peers would choose me to be the captain just because I reached out to individuals. And so I didn't realize at that time that God was training me how to be a chaplain because that's exactly what I do now, <laughs> you know, as a chaplain. I'm uh, there for the individuals uh, on the team and I try to treat every everyone on the tr- team with respect and with love and um, encouragement. And so that, that began to formulate in my heart. And then when I finished in 81, 1981 was my last uh, competitive year. I was called in uh, 1988. Well, actually in 1984, I was called to come to Los Angeles and work with some athletes on the U.S. team that wanted to uh, reach out into the community and just share their story, share their love, share their faith uh, with different people in the community and, and use it off their platform. They called me to come in and kind of be an example of how to do this. Since you've already been doing this and you've traveling all over the, the United States, speaking in schools and, and different civic groups and the whole thing, show the other athletes who want to reach out in Los Angeles how to do this. So I did, and I started working with them, et cetera. In 1988, the Seoul Olympic Committee set up, um, well, first of all, the, the president of the Seoul Olympic Committee said that, you know, he had some of his kids and uh, he wanted a place where they could pray. And so they said, to, IOC told him, well, if you do that, you're going to have to open it up to other religions, not just your religions as, as a Christian religion, you know, and Protestant religion, you're going to have to open it up to the Catholics, the, the Islam, the Jews, the, the Hindu and the Buddhist. And so he said, fine, whatever, just as long as my kids get a chance to go and have a place that they can pray. Cause that, that's part of their routine. That's part of what they do. That's part of the, their belief and how, and how they, they use their faith. So that's the time that I don't, I, to, to today, I still don't know how they got my name. <laughs> I, was, I don't know. I mean, because there were 27 Protestant chaplains from all over the world, and two of us were American. There was a male and myself, and there were only two females out of the 27 that were chaplains. One lady from, uh, I think she was from Norway, and she could speak nine different languages and everything, and me. <laughs> And I, I realized, I'm like, whoa, you know, okay, this is, this is really nice. But I also realized that I was the only Olympian that was on the chaplaincy team. So what happened is there were some, some different chaplains from different parts of the world who were assigned to their people group, and they were getting nowhere at all. And so I come into the chapel one day and I, and I see the, the head guy from in England really like disturbed and upset. And I, I asked him, I said, Andrew, what's the matter? And he said, some of my chaplains want to go home. And I was like, what, for what? And he said that 
they're having no success. They're not able to get into their groups. They're not able to talk to any of their athletes, and they're so disappointed. They just don't see the reason why they are even here. So I said, okay, let me do this. Bring all of us together. Have a mandatory meeting, okay? Bring all of us together, and let me talk to them from an Olympic platform. I said, since I'm the only Olympian on the chaplaincy team, I know the culture and I know what it's like to go through this day each day and experience what I experienced. But I said, these chaplains don't know. They have no idea. So they don't know how to reach out. So he did that. Of course, we had this stigma that I even wonder why you're here as a woman. You know, you should be either being a secretary or playing the piano. I recognize they had that, some of them, not all of them, but some of them had that type of stigma. And so when he introduced me, I shared, I said, uh, I'm not here to speak to you as a minister. I'm not here to tell you what to do when it comes to God's business. But I am wanting to share with you the day in the life of an Olympian, what it looks like. Because most of you came here thinking that you were going to do what only God can do, and that's change a person's heart. You cannot do that. We don't have the power to do that. Only God can do that. So what are you here to do? First of all, we are here as servants. I said, let's let's look at this scenario. If somebody came to your home to visit and you allowed them to come into your household and you welcomed them there and, and at, you say you could stay here for, you know, three or four days and, and that's good. And we'll, and all of a sudden this person turned to you and start telling you how to run your household, how you should live and what you should do in your household. How would that make you feel? And the guys looked, you know, like, whoa, wouldn't feel too good. I said, right. Here in this Olympic village, the Olympians are whole at home, away from home. This is their home. This is where they live. This is where they eat, where they sleep, where they work out, where they train, where they get ready to perform at their highest level in front of the whole world. And so we as visitors in their house do not come in here to tell them how to live how to live their lives, how to do this or that. That's not what we're here for. We're here to serve them, to do the very thing that God created them to do, and that is be the athlete that he made them. And I said, in, in God's sight, he is very pleased in that the very instrument and, and gift and talent that he has given these young people is what they are offering that the world should see. And because of that, we are to help them, help them prepare them, encourage them, empower them, love on them, help them understand that whether they they win or lose or wherever they are, they are still loved, that they are there because they are valued. That's what we're here for. So let me tell you what it looked like in my situation. I got up at five o'clock in the morning to do my first run. I would go out and run. I came back 
and I, usually I was hungry, and so I'd eat some breakfast and then go back, take a shower, lay down, take a nap. Why? Because I have a second workout. The second workout is usually uh, either before or after a meal, and it wasn't that hard. Um, maybe I was doing weights or I was doing some type of stretching or, you know, whatever. And then I would go back and, again, relax and get ready for my third workout, which was with my coach. Okay, when I got with my coach, that's definitely not a time that you want to stop me or talk to me. First of all, my coach would not see that as very helpful. Okay, so stay out the way. And then I would go do my main workout with him or her, whoever it is. And when I'd come back, I would come back and be ready to eat. You better believe it because my day was finished and I would be more relaxed. And so during that time that I'm eating, if you sat down at my thing and asked, do you mind if I join you or whatever, it's like that I'm, I'm okay. I'm cool because I finished my work. And now is a good time if you wanted to say, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? How are you doing? What, what sport is, are you in? How, how are you doing in your sport? You know, just I said one of the things that athletes love to do is that they love to talk about themselves. So if you ask them, you know, how they're doing and what's going on about their sport, and they will be glad to tell you. And I said, and somewhere in there, as they're talking about themselves, they'll realize, wait a minute, I, who is this person? <laughs> you know? And so they may say, uh, and, and what, what are you here for? Are you a staff or are you competing or what do you do? And, you know, you don't want to come off holier than thou. You know, I'm reverend, doctor, so-and-so, whatever. That's not important because you're a servant. And you can simply say something of that nature. You know, I'm just here to serve the athletes. You know, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, that's where I was born and raised. Don't go into anything that, oh, I, I used to run in high school. Or I played a little kickball. You're talking to an Olympic, a Olympian who has qualified at the highest level in the world. Okay, so you don't want to go into about yourself. But they open the door so you can just say to them, you know, I'm here trying to help the athletes in any way that I can. Is there anything that I can help you with in any way, you know, and as they talk, you can hear, kind of hear their line, where they're going. And so it might be appropriate and say, you know, yeah, I'm, I am a chaplain. And so is there anything you want me to pray for you about, you know, or keep you in mind? And some, uh, some will say, oh yeah. And they, they will open up and spill out. Others will um, might say, well, no, that's okay. And it's like, okay. Okay, just just wanted to know, you know, just want you to know I'll, I'll be thinking about you, okay? And I, want you, I hope you do really well. Encourage them. Lead them with something, okay? Don't come there to take from them. You're not the Lord. You know, you're not there to take their hearts. You're there to give. And after that, you know, you're okay. Or go to the, the pool room or whatever where they're, they're having fun, you know, relax and everything and join in the fun if, if that's what you do you know join in the fun but remember that these are athletes who are actively competitive and so don't join in something that they, they're going to kill you <laughs> enjoying it 
because they will they they will forget that you are whoever you are and see you as the competition. So I said it's just remember what mode of mind that they're in, what what they're experiencing at that time. It's part of their culture. That's what they're called to to compete. And I said, and you will make some of the greatest friends, sometime lifetime friends. And sometime later on, you know, down the road, they may open up and say, you know, I, I do have this need, you know, and could you, would you be willing to pray for me or with me or however? I said, that's what it looks like. Don't come in here with pistols, you know, ready to shoot, see how many you can get on your belt. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not your work. You're a servant here to love here to serve, here to empower, here to understand what they're going through, here to just be there to listen, listen to what they're saying. You don't have all the answers, and you never will, but you can be there for them, and that's all that God is asking you to do. Be there in in representation of his love for your fellow man. After that, Nobody went home. Things start opening up. Uh, some of the chaplains would come back and express like, wow, I can't believe what happened, you know? And I was like, yeah, because now you're in the right frame of mind to do the work that God sent you to do. I know that was kind of long, but <laughs> no, are you kidding? You're an Olympian. We asked the question and then you wanted to tell us. <laughs> yes. We, we, we kind of turned your own skill there around on you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Madeline. You can learn more about the United States Council for Sports Chaplaincy at USCSC03.com, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. She was interesting, and it was really interesting how they took Christianity to the basics because... In the U.S., especially today in the United States, there's a lot of division among denominations and even between Protestants and Catholics. And it, it's a tough religious scene out there. But man, talking with her and then listening again while I was editing this, it was, made me feel very calm inside and very happy. So I was very excited about this interview for a reason that I don't think you even know. Hmm. I, I, I have a secret. So Along with my library science degree, I also have a degree in religious studies. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So I start, I got real, all of a sudden that part of my brain that I haven't used since I got this degree in college was totally awakened. You know, it was my dual degree. So I got, and I just, the Jesuit taught person in me just mm -hmm. totally came out of nowhere and had all these technical questions. Wow. What was the impetus to go into religious studies? Well, what happened was I went to a Jesuit university, so we were re required to take two religious studies classes and two philosophy classes and either a fifth in one or the other. Mm -hmm. So I started taking classes with a particular professor that I really liked, and by the time senior year came, I needed like three classes for a double major. So, was, <laughs> And the professor said to me, and you can't take any of them with me. He was mm. my 
advisor for that degree. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So I took these really, I find religion in America extremely interesting. So I took all this history of the church oh, and religion in America and cults and all kinds of really interesting sociological aspects of religious studies because it's not theology. It's a little Mm -hmm. different. Right. Yeah. So when I was talking to Madeline, I was thinking of it more as a sociological construct. You know, how is this constructed? How do we work this when you've got people of many different faiths and many different approaches to faith? Right. Right. And I love what you were saying, how she just brought it down to it's your relationship with God, whatever you call the God, however you express that. We're here to support your relationship with God. Yeah, and that was really interesting and how how much sense that makes when you're just trying to be a presence for somebody who may be very religious, maybe not very religious, but has some inclination that way, but doesn't have the, the support network where they are right. in it's the not, village. Yeah. It's not like they can bring their chaplain with them, like their trainer right. or their coach. I mean, we know we've talked to, when we talked to Marty McBean about how many people can a, a team Canada bring, mm-hmm. even a huge team like that. You can't have everybody's coach. You can't have everybody's trainer. You definitely cannot have everybody's pastor from their home church. So, I mean, they can't even always bring their families. So to have that support, sort of like the team mom, Right, right. It's that same idea. You need people to fill these roles in people's lives and be that support network for them when they don't have their own with them. I mean, it was really interesting, the history of how that came to be. You know, when when Korea said, hey, we want this for our athletes and the IOC goes like, you could tell they were probably like, whatever. But if you have it for yours, you got to have it for everybody. So figure it out. Like, oh, okay. If you have a piece of gum... You have to give everyone in the class a piece. Exactly. So hooray to Korea for figuring how to make this happen. So here's what I need. I need Emily Cook to do my inspirational talk in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then I need Madeline Mims in the evening for my reflection. Ah, okay. That's my plan. They're all moving in. (laughs) Hey, let's see what's going on with our team Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shukflistan. John Register will be a featured speaker at the Employee Retention Summit for Manufacturers in November. Also on the speaker circuit is Marnie McBean, who will be a keynote speaker at the Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association Conference, where she will speak on leadership in times of disruption. Also on the speaker circuit, this just in from Twitter, Victoria Jackson was part of Global Sport Matters Live talking about how to better support black college athletes sounds very interesting we'll re- i will retweet this because she's got the whole presentation that she she tweeted and it's it looks really interesting on how you can do that one of the things uh, the options she has is spin off football and then olia abasolo of chinikova has been training for a 42.2 kilometer run but that was canceled so she ran the lausanne marathon route and then registered to run the virtual Lucerne Marathon. And her family was cheering her on. Yeah, I just, you know, run marathons for no reason, just because I can. Did she Did she carry her sword with her? Oh, that would have been oh. good. Oh. I'll have to mention that. She could wear, like, in a belt, like she's mm-hmm. Errol Flynn, and just yeah, sort of right. swing onto the course, run it. 
<laughs> oh, and then she could slash the ribbon at the end with the sword. Yes. Oh, come on, Olya. Yes. I've got it for you. All right. <laughs> Let's check in and see what's going on with Tokyo 2020. There's some early reporting on some COVID-19 measures that the Tokyo Organizing Committee is going to take. They have different screening measures that are pretty familiar to us by now. Hand sanitizers, scanning devices, uh, face shields for the guards. Uh, one innovation that ESPN reported was using a sticker placed on the wrist to measure body temperature very quickly. And they're analyzing different methods to see what works best. It'll be interesting to see how that works with the heat. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it may be good in that it will prevent people from experiencing heat stroke as well. Oh, that's a good point. But if your temperature is rising, is it from the heat, which was our big concern to mm -hmm. pre-COVID, or is it from a fever? So I'm... That's kind of a how will they know which is the cause. But exactly. still that could be useful. Right. And we're still probably a good couple of months out. The earliest they'll have an idea of what they should do is probably January at the earliest. Because, I mean, it's one of those hard things that the virus changes every day and the number of cases and deaths change every day and how you combat that and yet still have enough time to plan and give your audience enough time to plan too. So we shall see. You know what one thing is probably off the table? That's snow sprayer. Yeah, pro <laughs> probably. Well, you I don't know. I just can't imagine that that will No, be I, I imagine. I imagine yes. So, and the, then the Globe and Mail also reported that they were urge uh, talking about having crowds, the the spectators pack less with them. Take less into the venue so then you wait less to get into the venue. Sort of like Disney World. Yep, exactly. There's also going to be a health base set up in the Athletes Village, according to the Kyoto News. This will be separate from the regular health clinic that they have on site. Oh, so this will only be for co right. possible COVID cases. Exactly. Or, oh, that makes sense. Sort mm -hmm. of like how you have, I don't know if your doctor's office has this, a sick waiting room and a healthy waiting room. No. A lot of pediatrician huh. offices have that. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, Inside the Games is reporting that the ticket refund process is expected to begin in November, and that is for fans who can no longer go to the Games in 2021, and they'll be able to apply for refunds. There's They didn't have much more information about that. I, I don't know if you'd have to go through your ticket reseller or what will happen. There's still uncertainty over whether fans will be allowed to attend. Although they've been having different sporting events in Tokyo with more and more fans. So I think it depends. I am personally of the opinion that I probably won't get to go. Really? Mm -hmm. That's what you're thinking? That's what I'm thinking. I would, okay, they'll get all the athletes there. That'll be fine. They'll get families there. They'll be fine. Uh, quarantine and all that stuff or test, uh, test them a lot when they get there. Sponsors will get people in. Accredited press and broadcasters, they'll get in. But your average American like me, <laughs> no. They don't want us. I, I don't think so. Now with the way that American cases are going, I don't yeah. see us ending time soon. But that's cool because then I won't have to 
go through their tests to scan for smuggled drugs, which they've also devised. <laughs> Inside the game is reporting that the Japanese government is creating a device that will scan the body for smuggled drugs. And it's, it uses radio waves to detect a drug inside of a person and should take just a minute to complete. And then you can also sit on it to see if you're carrying anything up your butt. What, do, they, do they expect <laughs> the bag of drugs to sing cocaine like Eric Clapton? <laughs> I don't know. Or then but... along comes Mary. I mean, what, what are they using radio waves? They expect the drugs to sing songs or something to identify themselves? I don't know. Go ask Alice. Oh my God, we are dating ourselves. What do the kids say now? There's got to be some rap, some modern rapper song about drugs we can reference. Oh, Molly. Well, if you see Snoop Dogg coming, you know he's got some smuggled drugs in there. In happier news, uh, the flame is going to go on tour before the torch relay starts. Now, wasn't so, this supposed to happen? anyway before i seem to remember this i don't think so no because the torch was going to get lit in greece and then come over for the relay so now that the flame has just been hanging out in tokyo they decided that there's going to be a five-month tour before the torch relay and the tour is going to go visit uh 73 municipalities and 14 prefectures because even the flame is tired of being in lockdown it is. I think we should make a t-shirt. A torch tour. Free the flame. <laughs> keep the flame free. And keep the flame alive, man. <laughs> and then finally, there is a group that's studying a way to delay cherry blossoms from opening until July. So cherry blossoms usually open in the springtime. So they're working on getting the plants to a state where they won't open till July so they could have cherry blossoms for the opening ceremonies. But you know what's going to happen if they do that? They're going to unleash some superbug with their genetic tampering of these plants, and they're going to kill them. This is 2020. We have murder hornets and zombie flies and all sorts of insanity, and they want to start messing with plants blooming? No. no, but this this is also from the Kyoto News. This is an independent group that has tried to communicate with the Tokyo Organizing Committee, but they've yet to hear back on them. But they're still working on it. No, no point talking to the cherry blossoms. Please, can you just wait a couple months? <laughs> Timmy's going to get his braces off. The pictures will be so much better. Not quite how they're doing it. I think they're packing them in snow for a while. With the snow blowing machines. <laughs> They'll be too afraid to bloom if they see those things coming out. <laughs> and then, okay, so this is good news. The International Paralympic Committee is planning to support and send up to six refugee athletes to Tokyo. So they're developing their own refugee team, much like the IOC did for Rio and is doing again for Tokyo, which is nice. Excellent. Let's move on to some Paris 2024 news. In December, the Paris Organizing Committee is presenting the event program that they want and having that all finalized and voted on. Well, Modern Pentathlon is proposing a new format for the sport. And this was huge. So modern pentathlon as you, is a long storied history of being a difficult event. 
but it's one that Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympics, did create. So it's very hard to kick it out, even though it's consistently in like the lowest tier of audience engagement. So modern pentathlon used to be five sports over five days. And then in Atlanta, they cut it down to one day. And then in London, they combined the shooting and running events into a laser run, which made it more exciting. And then in Tokyo, they're going to put everything into one stadium, which makes it easier to host. But it's still like a six-hour event. And now they're going to propose for Paris a 90-minute event, all in one stadium, all kind of very compactly focused. And they're going to have an elimination system. And all, all I've seen, they've, they've had test events and have had positive feedback, but it would start off with the horses, and that would be 20 minutes long, then they get a 10-minute break, then they fence for 15 minutes, 10-minute break, swim for 10 minutes, 10-minute break, and then the laser runs 15 minutes. You have a 90-minute event. And who did they work with to help them develop this? Among other, they had a lot of stakeholders and stuff, but... Olympic Broadcasting Service. Mm. Well, it, one of the problems is people don't watch it. Oh, so yeah, then, no. So if nobody's watching it, then kids aren't, I want to go compete in modern pentathlon. Oh, yeah. So they're not getting the athletes. So it's totally reasonable that the broadcasters would be involved because they mm -hmm. want more engagement. But I'm surprised because other than fencing, none of the elements are head to head. Is that correct? Uh, laser run is head to head because they're all going head head. because because what happens now is the results from the first three events rank you and that determines the order that you start the laser run. Okay. So the the person in first place starts first and everybody chases that person. I was thinking, would it make more sense to do it like gymnastics? Have the four events, you know, do fencing and then have the other three going through rotation. But I Maybe guess they want is. that. I guess they want that last run to truly be whoever crosses the finish line first, right? To get that heightened suspense, right? Thing going. Wow, ninety minutes. Mm -hmm. It's pretty incredible. I am interested to see what this looks like. You know what else surprises me on this? Hmm. Decathlon is over two days. Mm -hmm. Why are we not tampering as much with decathlon? Because people know what what those events are. Yeah, maybe. And it's just part of a bigger field. This is its own standalone thing. Right. I mean, while you're watching decathlon events, you're also watching many other races going at the same time. True. Whereas this is just very dedicated. Wow. So the, the field of play looks like it fits into a much smaller stadium, which is a good thing for venue reuse. I know in Tokyo... The modern pentathlon and rugby are in the same venue because they're on different days. I would love so. to talk to someone who worked at developing this because I already have so many questions of a swimming pool and a horse. Well, and, you get a Mirtha pool. Right. And what, you throw the horses in there? No, the horses are next to it. You have a little stadium, so you have a pool that looks to be about 25 meters. I'm, I'm looking, they have a, uh, we'll put this on, link on our show notes. The, the Modern Pentathlon International Federation posted a, a press release about this, and they have a little graphic with the format and how it's laid up. So you have the pool, and it looks to be about 25 meters. It's a short, much shorter pool. Then you have the show jumping next to it, 
and it's got about nine jumps. Okay, I have a way to make this even shorter. Take out the horses? No. Remember the swimming horses? Like the diving horses? So you got to swim on the horse. You have to, you make it like a steeple, a steeplechase run. Mm -hmm. So you got to one lap you do with the horse and one lap in the pool you just run. And then you could be like a musketeer and have the sword in one hand and the laser gun in the other. (laughs) And like have to fight like a pirate. This is the second week we're talking about piracy. What is up with us? I don't know. (laughs) But I'm yeah, I'm completely fascinated by this. We'll find out in December if it happens. My guess is all signs point to yes, that everyone will be like, oh, yeah, 90 minutes. Sign us up for this. Also, the event program in Paris, there's 20 of the 27 international federations that want changes for the events. I know I haven't had time to go look them up, all of them, but I did notice that sailing wants to introduce a mixed offshore sailing event, which is two people, male, female, on a three-day, two-night race. That sounds like something you'd win on Price is Right. (laughs) A sailing trip, three days, two nights, on a boat off of Paris. Doesn't sound like but an you don't event. know where because they had like four courses that they've chosen and they won't choose the course until closer to the race because they'll want to know what the conditions are going to be. And if they put it in Tahiti, that is definitely in the showcase showdown. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to learning more about that. Okay, let's move on to some IOC news. Tebok, after accepting his sole peace prize, well, maybe not in that order, but uh, he has written an op-ed in The Guardian about sports and politics not mixing, which is basically saying that he doesn't want to see protests at the games. But his reasoning was very interesting. I did post this in both the Facebook group and on the Facebook page. And his thinking was not so much that politics and sports don't mix. It's that We don't want to take away the focus from the athletes to a cornucopia of issues of the week. Yeah. And that makes sense from that perspective, because you're supposed to like, it's supposed to be peaceful and all the wars are supposed to shut down for the duration of the games. Why have all these protests? Right. Because it's not part of the ideals of Olympism. Now, we all know that there is always politics and sports and mm-hmm. the Olympics have always been very political. And probably the only people who aren't allowed to talk about politics are the athletes. And yet, when he laid out his argument, he was very convincing. He is a lawyer. Come on, t making me love you. So, yes, this also adds to the my curiosity of what's going to happen about Rule 50. And every time I read an op-ed or someone who feels very strongly one way or the other, I find myself swinging. Oh, do you? Okay. I do. I really can feel the passion on both sides and the importance of both sides. And I can't really settle on where I want this to go. Like, I definitely want Rule 50 to go in the sense that I don't want athletes to be punished for this. Mm -hmm. I don't want another John Carlos, Tommy Smith situation to ever happen again. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I still want it to be the Olympics. And how how do we get there? 
That's a good question. And and I I wonder if it stems from athletes feeling like they have no voice in the situation. Just historically, there, there's always exceptions to that rule. But traditionally, there have been people in charge of federations and the athletes have no or little voice. And isn't it interesting? I, I find T-Box's stance so interesting because he grew up in a divided Germany. I mean, he grew up in West mm-hmm. Germany, mm-hmm. so he certainly was allowed to speak. But just the whole idea of that split Germany, and yet he's wanting to not bring politics into sport, maybe because his upbringing was so, poli- I mean, everything in Germany in those years, you would sneeze and it would be an East-West question. Right. And, and and then he also had to deal with the boycott. Right. Because he was a medalist in Montreal and potentially could have gone, but he was chair of the West German Athletes Commission, opposed the boycott, but still was affected by it. Right. So it's everybody's personal experience feeds into their stance on Rule 50. Yeah, it'll be it's this is a very tough one. A very tough one. Because I don't think anybody is really wrong. Unless they have a protest that people don't agree with. Right. It's like everybody is wrong and no one is wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone is. It, it's not like sponsorship questions or doping questions or there's no apparent villain. Everybody is trying to preserve a right we should have. We should have freedom of speech. We should preserve the sanctity of the Olympics. We should give athletes their moment on the podium. We shouldn't hurt other athletes' moments on the podium. It's like everybody is right. It's one big gray area. It's tough. It's it's very, very tough. It's a fascinating conversation to watch from the outside. I imagine that the discussions on the inside are very, very difficult. I bet they curse in multiple languages at each other. That could be, but never maybe not T-Bach. to their faces. No, but not T-Bach. He was never T-Bach. Let's say we've got a little bit of uh, Paralympic news as well. The IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, has released a governance review. The Paralympics is, is different than the IOC because the Paralympics are also an international federation to several sports. Now they plan to break off all their sports, all of those sports into their own international federations by 2026. Makes sense. Yeah, I bet that uh, the movement is big enough now and that the IPC needs to act like an IPC, like, like an IOC and be, they need to manage their games, not necessarily all these sports. And it's also hard to have that dual role. Yes. And be be effective. Right. To be two things at once that can sometimes be in conflict with each other Mm -hmm. and not always with the same goals. And they need to they need to unmuddy their waters. Exactly. So that's good. I think that's going to be a good thing for everyone. Yeah. The Paralympic movement. Yes. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think about Olympic chaplains. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. 
Next week, we'll, we will have part two of our interview with Madeline and talk about her Olympic experiences. And as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. what you do.